Oh, it's really a privilege to be here this morning. Celestini, as Paul said, uh, I, I teach at Phoenix Seminary. Celestini actually have, for 10 years, taught a class on relationships. I'm thankful Phoenix Seminary has a class like that, uh, Theology and Practice of Relationships. We've been married, Paul, you said you're 42? Yeah. Still pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> We've been married 41 plus years. God, yeah. <laughs> God has blessed us with three grown children and five grandchildren, including two African granddaughters. Uh, our daughter married a Ugandan. They live in Uganda and minister to street kids and impoverished communities. I've been a pastor for 15 years, and now I get to train pastors, uh, both here in the U.S., and I spend up to two months a year in East Africa uh, training pastors. I, I say that to say I have... In God's goodness, a little bit of experience with families. And of course, I come from a family, and I have one. If I've learned anything over the years about relationships and families, it's this. They're complicated. <laughs> Is that fair? <laughs> and I could add a second point. Our relationships in general, and our families in particular, are powerful. They're powerful for good, and they can be powerful for pain. It's the way God's made us. We're made in his image. He's a God in relationship. He's made us relational beings. So those closest to us, spouse, children, parents, our, our intimate friends, they have a, a unique power to bless us and help us become all that God intended us to be, and they have a uniquely potent power to wound us. Because it, it might seem strange, okay, we, Cedar Mill's doing a series on marriage and relationships, and now we're gonna talk about abuse? That, that could seem like a real outlier, like well, that, that doesn't fit here. It really does. It does because you've never been in a relationship humanly, that didn't involve two sinners, right? And what do sinners do by definition? <laughs> sin. We sin against each other, uh, even when it's someone we love and we don't want to. And sometimes those sins can turn into patterns, patterns that can be really destructive. So because of that reality, I'm super thankful that Cedar Mill had the courage to include a sermon on abuse. And, and we're gonna, I've titled this Domestic Violence, um, but we'll certainly touch on other kinds of ways we abuse each other in relationships. You might also be thinking, well, no, I, I get it, Steve, you're in East Africa, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of abuse in East Africa, and there is. Uh, we're in the Congo called the Rape Epicenter of the World by the UN. We're in war zones. We see an unbelievable amount of abuse. But this is Cedar Mill. We're in the suburbs. Celeste and I live not far away. Um, so, I mean, abuse doesn't happen in churches like this. This is a Bible-believing, I mean, so surely not here. You know, maybe the inner city. If, if you're thinking that, you're in good company because that's exactly what I was thinking in my second pastorate 
a, a church in Tucson pretty similar to Cedar Mill. Not, not quite as large, but um, very dynamic, uh, stand on the word of God, uh, pretty educated congregation uh, in, in the suburbs, looked good, wonderful ministries. And so when at our weekly pastors meeting, they said that the women's ministry was gonna have a speaker on domestic violence that week. I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Young pastor, I had all the answers. I didn't really know the right questions, but, um, but I had my seminary degree, so I knew it all. Oh. Ouch, ouch. I just thought that, was, that, that made no sense. You know, We're, we're a good, godly church. Um, we don't need that. I didn't realize, I found out a couple years later, that one of our elders had been beating his wife for 20 years. Wife was on full-time staff in family ministry in our church. It, it came out a few years later. I had actually just left um, to go back and do more schooling, uh, and I talked to one of my former colleagues, and he told me, and she finally left and called the, the pastors and said, I will no longer live with this like this. He's put me in the hospital several times, and, and I can no longer do this. I was dumbfounded. Like, that doesn't happen in that kind of church. Well, actually, now I realize there were several leaders. It, there was a missionary. Criminal-level abuse. And then if we take it less than the criminal level, just uh, verbal abuse and other ways that we hurt each other, there is no exempt church. Because, again, we're filled with sinners. Uh, there's no safe zones from us misusing the power God's given us. But there can be zones of healing. There can be zones of honesty. And that's what we want to cultivate this morning. So I'm really thankful um, Cedar Mill is willing to address this. And in doing that, you're doing something significant. Well, I, I'm going to look at several different passages. That's one of my challenges. I, I typically will pe preach through a passage uh, a little more exegetically, and that's a great way to preach. But there's times that there's no single passage. In fact, there are hundreds of passages, but I don't think you want to be here for the next couple weeks so I'm going to just look uh, in survey fashion. We're going to look at several different passages and just try to get a broad overview of domestic violence. What does abuse look like in, um, in a family, in, in intimate relationships? Uh, and then make some points of application for Cedar Mill. What do we, what do, we do in light of these um, admittedly painful realities? So let me start uh, just with some, uh, a basic definition. What is domestic violence? Um, this is kind of a textbook definition. It's good to start with by clarifying your terms. Domestic violence is the use or threat of physical violence to control a family member or intimate partner. Now, that's kind of a legal, uh, semi-legal definition. Um, domestic, we're talking about intimate relationships, families. Uh, could be, you know, romantic relationship, but intimate relationships. That, that's the domestic side. Um, and, and domestic violence always a, it involves a misuse of your power. We often think of this in terms of physical assault, and that certainly is domestic violence, and that is all too common. I'll give you a few stats in just a minute. But it's really important that we understand it's also 
verbal threats. Lots of things happen in a family that can be incredibly destructive and abusive that don't actually involve physical assault. So there's, there's, there's a spectrum here. Um, and it always involves the misuse of power. As image bearers of God, and that's what scripture tells us, Genesis 1.28, we're created in his image after his likeness. God's given us power. And we have potency that animals don't. And I am a big time nature lover. Um, I just, man, I love living in Oregon. Um, hike the Wallawas every summer and just go up on Mount Hood for the day. I mean, just get to see the beauty. Um, it's majestic what God's done in the animal world, but it pales in comparison. That the potency God's given us as, as human beings, that, that nothing else in creation has. We have physical power. We have verbal power. Uh, we have sexual power, which, my goodness, th the ability to create life in the image of God, that's, that is a, a godlike power, if you understand it in those terms. Um, so we have potency. Any kind of potency, gift, can be misused in ways that are destructive, and that's what happens with abuse. Um, so domestic violence is misusing our power over another person, and it's generally someone with less power. Ezekiel 22.6 um, would be one of many examples of how power is connected to abuse, I mean, fundamentally. And it's interesting, the context here is not the Canaanites. It's the family of God. It's the children of Israel, and it's the leaders in the children of Israel. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. So sometimes we use our power in physically assaultive ways, but it goes on. They have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Now, it, it, it's not an immediate family, but the application is clear. Um, it's the physical, but it's also mistreatment of those with less power. There are ways parents can oppress and mistreat their children, and it may not be a physical assault, but it's oppression. It's words. It's, it's hyper-control that just... Um, strips that person of any sense of dignity or worth. And sadly, many of us have experienced that. Well, that's what, what God is describing here through the prophet Ezekiel. Oppression, mistreatment, and sometimes actual physical assault. Let me just give you one verse that brings in the verbal. I really want to emphasize that this morning. Um, the majority of us by God's grace, did not grow up in families where there was physical assault. But please, don't, don't check out. I didn't either, and I'm, boy, I'm so thankful. Uh, my parents loved me growing up, and they loved me well. They weren't perfect. They made plenty of mistakes. They'd be the first to admit that. But one of my problems as a young pastor was because I hadn't experienced abuse, I just assumed it really didn't happen very often. It was just my you know, default setting. Um, and that was a blessing, but it, it caused me to be naive. But I think all of us can relate to the verbal side of this. Certainly if you've went through junior high, you can. Um, people, and again, it's most 
destructive when it's someone that we're in an intimate relationship with, particularly if it's someone who has power over us, particularly a parent, could be a spouse. Um, when they misuse their words in ways that demean us, threaten us, cause fear, cause shame. Notice in Psalm 73, which is a whole chapter, is a powerful description of abusers uh, and the effects of abuse. But, but notice the verbal side here. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Isn't that interesting? Um, these abusers that God is condemning are characterized by their verbal threats. Now, you don't have to hit someone to get control over them. In fact, it's, it's more clever in many respects if you don't actually touch them, but you use power in other ways to control them. And it may be verbal threats. There are lots of ways we can do that. Well, God's word is, is very realistic about that. And domestic violence covers a broad range of behaviors. Again, there's the physical assault down to, you know, on a, on a descending level of, of physical violence to choking, slapping, throwing objects at someone, deliberately injuring their property, their pets, making threats of harm. You might be here this morning thinking, well, I've never experienced uh, abuse. I've never experienced domestic violence. But sometimes when we look at the broader definition, we start to realize, wow, I actually did experience some of those. And I, I never thought of that as abuse. Um, but based on Scripture, and even um, legally in most, most states, that whole range is, is understood as, as abusive, criminal, and really destructive. So we need to understand that, too. So we said, what is abuse? Now, two, how common is domestic violence? Multiple studies. Um, I'm an academic, so I, I publish. I look at the research carefully. A quarter to as many of a, as a third of women in North America, that's one out of four, one out of three, so U.S. and Canada, will experience at least one physical assault by an intimate partner in her lifetime. And I still have a hard, this is my field, and I still have a really hard time accepting that. But there's just been so many good studies. I, you'll find some that are 22%. Well, I don't care if it's one out of five or one out of four. We're talking about a tremendous percentage of our population. And, and that's just the physical assault. Again, that's not factoring in the, the verbal and other ways that in a non-contact way, um, we can experience domestic violence. So we're talking about a really high percentage of the population and of our congregations. And it's not just married couples or dating couples. Uh, it's not just adults. There were a couple studies done independently a few years ago with high school girls, and they found that 20%, one out of five high school girls report, and usually under-reporting on abuse is is just the norm because of the shame. Um, when you poll people on whether they've experienced abuse, they don't over-report. Um, but they were, one out of five girls reported having experienced physical or sexual assault 
uh, by a dating partner, romantic partner. That's incredible. So I say that to say this, this topic is relevant to all of us. And, and know that we don't want to think about it. It's, believe me, I, it, it's hard for me. But the only way God can set us free is if we walk in the truth and acknowledge what we need healing and freedom from. So hang in there with me this morning. Three. So what is domestic violence? How common is it? Let's ask ourselves, what does God think of physical abuse? Now, that might seem like a setup question by the theologian. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't like it. And that would be true. But it's much, let's get more specific than that. I, I tell my seminary students, anytime in God's word you hear something God loves or something God hates, your, your ears should really perk up. Of course, God hates all sin, but there are only a handful of sins that are given this kind of special designation as something God hates in a particular way. Uh, with domestic violence or, or physical abuse, some translations use the word abhor. I mean, it's really strong language. I want us to hear that, particularly those of you who have experienced uh, some kind of abuse, your family wasn't like my family, Celeste's family, were far from perfect. Yeah, there were definitely some wounds, but you know, we didn't know physical abuse. It didn't, it didn't happen. Um, but some of you are here this morning, and you come from families where there was some really painful physical abuse. And Satan would like to use that in your life or it could have been other kinds. could have been sexual, other things. Satan would like to use that to cause you to question, where's God? Why doesn't God care about this? Satan has a field day with that, but I can tell you what God thinks of that because he's told us. And he's very specific. Psalm 11, 5 the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Hear that this morning. Those of you who really have some, some painful memories and wounds, God is speaking this morning and saying, I hate abuse, and I hate unrepentant abusers. Because to abuse a human is to assault God. Think of it. We're made in the image of God. So if I abuse another human, in a sense, I am assaulting their creator. And that's why abuse is a really big deal. And it helps explain why it doesn't matter how many years ago it happened, it, the, the effects are long-term and profound because it attacks the very essence of who we are as a human in God's image when his image is assaulted, literally or metaphorically. So God says, I hate that. I want to heal that. I want it to stop. Four, does scripture show that physical abuse is common? <laughs> Again, my challenge would be, there's so many passages, I don't know where to begin, but let me just give you a few to give you a little 
taste of, of this so that you begin to get maybe a, a different lens that I certainly needed as a young pastor. Um, how much scripture does address this? Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation account. The, the world is God intended before their sin. Genesis 3 is the fall of Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they, they succumb to temptation. Sin enters the world. In the very next chapter, we read of two incidents of abuse in Genesis 4. I mean, think of that. Just, okay, we're just one chapter into the Bible after the fall, and now we have abuse. That should say something to us. I, I didn't think about the implications of that as for, for a long time, but I certainly do now. I, nobody knows how many years that was, but it's one chapter in the Bible. Boom. Cain kills Abel. First instance of domestic violence, Genesis 4. And then later in the chapter, we have the first instance of, of marital domestic violence. We have this character that we don't know much about uh, named Lamech. And he, uh, he makes a threat. And he's the first polygamist, by the way. We've already jettisoned God's good plan for marriage. Uh, God gave Adam a wife, Eve. Lamech, after the fall, says, I can do better than that. I'll have multiple wives. And guess what? I'll control them, and they'll do what I say. Um, he had a very hard heart. So to his wives, he says, listen to me. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. If Cain avenged is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. That is egregious domestic violence. The only reason you would tell your wives, I've killed someone, and if anyone wounds me, they're gonna get back 77 times, is you're telling them, and their names are kind of hard, so I won't try to remember their names. Mary and Susie Q, don't mess with me or you'll, you may end up dead like the guy that I've already killed. Wow. Nothing says he touched them, but that's, that's very abusive. So we're in Genesis 4. Two more chapters, Genesis 6. Uh, we have the account of Noah's flood. And you may not have really thought about the fact, and I didn't for a long time, the flood came because of physical abuse. Uh, we read in the text that violence covered the earth, bloodshed. Um, so that's why God sent the flood, because of physical abuse. And we could just continue on in Scripture, and when you get a lens for it, all of a sudden you start to realize, no, this is not the exception. This is all over the place. And again, we're, well, I'm just looking at, at, at physical and verbal abuse this morning. A high percentage of the Psalms are written in the context of abuse. I'll give you one example. And we sing that chorus that, that, that worship song that comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm sure the goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And you might think, well, that, well, that has nothing to do with domestic violence or, or abuse. Like, that's just, oh, man, that's great, wonderful. God's my shepherd. Those of you who are maybe have known the Lord a while and know your Bible, what's the previous chapter, Genesis, uh, excuse me, Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is how it starts out. And then it goes on to describe horrific threats. It describes people being like bulls with big horns trying to gore him. Uh, describes people shaming him. 
describes verbal abuse, describes life-threatening physical uh, dangers from people, uh, abusers. The context of the Lord is my shepherd is the danger and harm of abuse. Wow. And I could, I could go on. It is woven throughout the Bible. And the last thing I'll point out is in the New Testament, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he's not abusive. First Timothy 3.3 3, um, says uh, that, that someone who's qualified to be an elder is not violent. That's a good translation from the Greek. I've, as I said, I've been a pastor in three churches. I've been an elder in many others. I've been on search committees. I've seen a lot of list of qualifications for a pastor in a given church, but I've never seen not abusive. Because we just kind of think, well, you don't have to say that. Well, Paul did. Ultimately, God. So I guess this really does happen even in Christian communities. Um, Scripture gives us that indication. Okay, let's move to the, to the so what. What should the church do about domestic violence? Let me start by noting, oh, this is so great. We have a resource as Christians that the world will never have. We have the gospel. The gospel transforms. There, there is no secular domestic violence shelter. There is no secular trauma therapist etc., that can do what the gospel can do. The gospel is about Jesus being abused. Got a cross over here. Isn't that amazing that God would use abuse? And by the way, Jesus experienced all five of the main kinds of abuse, obviously physical, verbal, spiritual. He was, he was crucified naked. I think there was an element of, of sexual violation there. Um, all the main kind, spiritual, the spiritual leaders. <coughs> Sorry. It was through abuse that God provided salvation so that we could be brought into a right relationship with our creator. So that we could be, Jesus was shamed so that our shame could be removed. He was beaten horrifically so that we would be healed. God is the master redeemer to take the worst of what Satan throws against us and the worst of what we do to transform it. So as Christians, we have the gospel to, to address this subject and to help people and families change. And we have the body of Christ. And the body of Christ in a healthy church is a place where there can be real relationships, where we live out those beautiful commands in Scripture of caring for one another helping each other, etc. So we have a beautiful context in the church to address domestic violence. Four, four ways we can do that. One, foster authenticity. And I know authenticity, and, and I wrote this before Pastor Dave told me this is one of the kind of pillar goals of, of Cedar Mill, that, that you become and are an authentic community. Abuse shuts us down. Abuse makes us want to hide because, and that's just the way it works, and Satan has a field day with this. Because of things that have been done to me, I feel shame. I feel defective. I feel like if people really knew, they'd have nothing to do with me. And that's certainly, and, and it's equally true of men and women. I, 
you know, when you talk about domestic violence, often you describe it in terms of uh, wives receiving um, the, the physical abuse. And statistically, that's true. Um, but moms are just as sinful as dads. Uh, I'm sure there, there are men here who experienced um, some horrific things growing up at the hands of a mom or, or another female relative or, or just another female, period. Um, and that produces horrific shame. So it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Um, abuse causes shame. And that just causes us to want to hide from each other. How much healing is there going to be when we're hiding? How much healing is there going to be when I can't tell you what's happened to me because I'm afraid that you will judge me because of it? So I keep it in the dark, right where Satan wants it. Or if maybe I've done things. And I look back and I say, I can't believe I did that to my child. And so again, we think if, if anyone knew, they would, they would cut me off. And so we just suffer in silence. And Satan says, I got him right where I want him. In authentic community, we begin to know who each other really is. I have a very high-priced fashion consultant put this outfit together. I don't want to look lousy this morning, nor do you. So we come in Sunday morning, and we've done our hair, and, and we go through the closet, and I look, you know, okay, that looks like a decent outfit. We, we want to put our best forward, and that's appropriate. But I hope you see the obvious problem. What, what you see is, I got my hair cut, got a shirt that pretty much fits, shine my shoes, looking good. But that tells you nothing about the real Steve. That doesn't tell you anything about heartache that may be there. That doesn't tell you anything about my real struggles. That's where we need authentic community. And that's where we live out the many, many dozens of New Testament commands to love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens over and over. And that's, that takes courage. If God is speaking to you this morning about some things, again, either things you've experienced by way of abuse or things you've done, I would argue the most important thing you can do is to reach out today because it never gets easier to reach out for help. There are people here who would like to, would love to be part of helping you walk through what you need to walk through. Begin to build authentic community and so much can change. I've seen it over and over. Two, listen. Huge action step. Listen. I, I, particularly for those of us who are blessed to grow up in families where abuse was the farthest thing from our experience. Our, our, our moms and dads weren't perfect, but they loved each other. They did, I mean, you know, you've never seen it in, in your family of origin. You've not experienced it, especially for those of us who are blessed with that. The only way we're going to understand the world of an abuse survivor is to listen. And when it comes to domestic violence, it's particularly important, I think, for us men to listen because just by virtue of the way God's made us, we as men, they're exceptions, but they're just that. We're generally stronger than, than the women around us. I've never worried about getting raped. 
I mean, unless you're in prison or in certain urban context, as a man, you don't factor that into your world. Our wives and daughters do. They factor that into where they park. That doesn't go away from them. That's not a conscious part of my world. That's a simple example of the fact that we have to listen. I'm a pretty big guy, as you can see. I've done weightlifted, done sports virtually all my life. I haven't been in many contexts where I felt physical threat. So if I just use what's intuitive for me, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to think, I think she's being a little dramatic here Um, because I haven't had that, that experience. And so I better just be quiet and listen. And that's actually a really biblical concept. James 5.16 or excuse me, James 1, 19. And I'll go ahead and read it. It's short and to the point. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger. Quick to hear and slow to speak. We've got to listen listen to survivors and hear their experiences. Uh, Celeste talks about um, courageous listening, and I love that phrase. Uh, the idea of courageous listening is listening with the intent and goal of being changed. Listen so that I truly begin to understand that other person's experience and I allow that to change me, my perceptions, my heart, etc. And that's really an act of love and compassion. Abuse is such a difficult subject that, you know, it's painful and it, it can kind of shut us down. I can, I can feel that anytime I preach on it, I understand. Um, and we can feel powerless, like, man, this is such a big problem. What do we do? Here's the good news. One of the best things we can do to make a difference is to listen. Listen, listen patiently and lovingly uh, to those around us when we begin to hear these kinds of stories. That is a huge action step. It really is. Number three, educate. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7 is one of my favorite passages on parenting, but it's applicable certainly beyond just raising our own children. God has put young people, children, adolescents, in all of our lives, um, as parents, as grandparents, as as friends, as uncles, aunts, etc. There are people, little ones, in our lives that God wants us to influence for him. to to be teaching them biblical truth. Now, this is given to parents. These words that I command you, words of God, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. (laughs) Not really any category left out there. In other words, we're to be teaching our children God's truth, God's word, constantly. And that surely includes how his word relates to the way we treat each other, to our relationships. And that includes abuses of power. Give you a simple 
um, but I think pretty powerful example um, from our own family. A few years ago, our, our nephew was having a birthday party. He turned 10, and we're at the park, and we're doing what you do at 10-year-old boys' birthday parties. You, you eat a lot, and then you play football. And it was a, you know, mixed gender, 10-year-olds, boys and girls. And one kid on the team, wow, this, it was really scary, his level of anger, 10 years old. Um, his sister did something innocently. He grabbed the football, threw it in her face, and split her lip. And I immediately jumped in. I'm not the parent, but I just said, man, that's inappropriate. You need to apologize to your sister. This kid was hard-hearted. It was really scary. My little nephew jumped in. So he wasn't listening to the old guy. So my nephew, 10 years old, jumped in, and he said, there is never, ever, ever an excuse to hit a girl. You use your strength to protect them. That's wrong when you do that, and you can get in trouble with the law, and it needs to stop. <laughs> like, ah! Now, where do you think my 10-year-old nephew got that message? From his dad. I know that. Okay, it helps that his dad's a cop in Beaverton. <laughs> but I also know that my brother-in-law was doing that kind of education before he became a policeman. It didn't start then. Uh, very systematically with boy, both his two sons and their daughter, um, he and his mom have taught on relationships, on abuse, on how you respond when people are mistreating you, etc. cetera. Um, and we have so many opportunities all day long, um, from billboards to a commercial that comes on to an in, you, you go to the supermarket and you're with your kids and, and you witness an exchange, a guy being rude, maybe yelling at his girlfriend, his wife. What a great opportunity. I mean, that's sad, but what an op opportunity on the way home to process that. Man, it, did you see how he was talking to her? What do you think about that? W what would you do if one of your friends was doing that? What would you do if a boy at school you liked treated you that way? Wonderful opportunities to educate and then bring in scripture in really relevant ways. If we're looking for it, constant opportunities to do that. And finally, advocate. We advocate for those who are being abused and oppressed. We advocate for those who have less power and they're being taken advantage of. I love Proverbs 31.8. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. I think this is especially relevant. All of us need to do this, but I, I say to us men, I think it's especially relevant for us. Often domestic violence is considered a woman's issue, and if women raise it, they can quickly be labeled an angry, angry feminist or something like that. But you know what? Domestic violence is a human issue. It's all of us. It shouldn't just be the women who are raising the, the, the flag and saying this is a problem. It shouldn't just be the women in Me Too who are saying sexual harassment is a problem. We all need to 
lift up the standards of scripture and how we're to treat each other. And when it's not happening and someone's being taken advantage of, be a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Let me close by going back to where I began. I mentioned that elder and his wife. Now, this is frankly kind of rare. When it gets to that level, um, men who've done that for years often don't truly repent. But there's always hope in the Lord. Um, I had, le- as I said, I'd left that church to, to go get some more schooling. But a couple years later, I was called uh, and asked if I would perform a wedding for uh, their daughter. Actually, uh, I think I flew back from England. I did my PhD in England, and it was so delightful. The dad came to me, the abuser, and said, I am so thankful that this church had the courage to hold me accountable. I'm thankful that, as mad as I was at the time, I'm thankful that they supported my wife because I'd, I was destroying my family and didn't know how to stop. And we have a marriage today that I never thought was possible. And the the mom told me the same thing. And the daughter told me that. And I I witnessed it. These things can change. It's hard. It doesn't happen quickly. But if we address abuse and we, we do it in a biblical way, absolutely change is possible. Whether you're the one who's received or the one who's perpetrated or maybe it's both. Let me close by just mentioning, um, if the Lord has just stirred some things this morning, uh, Mending the Soul has all kinds of resources. Most of them are free. Uh, MendingTheSoul.org. Lots of educational things, some of the articles I've written um, on on various aspects of abuse. Um, So I throw that out as a resource. And Cedar Mill has done an incredible job of addressing abuse through small groups. Um, Many in the soul, small groups. You've got some really dedicated facilitators here. And I know you're running those on, uh, in an ongoing way. There's some wounds that God's telling you you need to have addressed. You, you've got, you've got a, a means right here at Cedar Mill. And I want to thank you, f- facilitators, for your uh, just faithful service here. Let's close in prayer. Lord, this is a heavy topic. We are so grateful that you are a God of grace. You are a God who heals our wounds. We're so thankful that you, through the cross, were willing to suffer abuse so that the abuse we've experienced could be dealt with, could be healed, and and the abuse we perpetrated could be forgiven so that our relationships could be mended and made whole. Lord, please give courage this morning where courage is needed. I pray you'll just guide each one. You know what we need individually. I pray there'll be just much fruit as as all of us continue to look at what you have to say uh, about our relationships. We ask for your guidance and your blessing and your touch this morning. In Christ's name.